this week on the Backtable Podcast. I don't want people to be intimidated about treating this patient population. It's such a tough, challenging time in a pregnant patient's life when they're going through, you know, this other pain or these other problems related to their pregnancy and they just want to be home and enjoy being pregnant or enjoy their newborn baby. And so medical management or radiation uh, safety is something that we should be very familiar with so we can put our patients at ease. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington today. And my guest today is Dr. Nikki Keefe, Assistant Professor of Interventional Radiology and Associate Program Director at University of North Carolina. Our topic today is the pregnant IR patient. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks, Allie, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Before we start, could you tell me a little bit about the program at UNC? UNC's program in IR is fantastic, if I do say so myself. (laughs) We have somewhere between uh, one to two IR pathway residents a year. We cover the entire gamut of IR with the exception of PAD work but you get that during your vascular surgery rotations. We've got two dedicated pediatric IRs. Um, So we do a lot of peds IR, despite not having a dedicated pediatric program. I just really love it here. It's such a great collegial environment. It's like my IR family away from my home. Awesome. And uh, you work with Dr. David Morrow too, right there? I do, yes. That's fantastic. It's like you guys have a little mini UVA family there. Okay, well, let's just start getting into our topic for today. How did you first get interested in managing pregnant IR patients? I became pregnant during my fellowship. And so just knowledge about pregnancy and radiation exposure and all of that was something I was really interested in, mainly for my own protection. But then, you know, we get a lot of IR patients who are pregnant or breastfeeding. And so it's really important to understand how what we do the medications that we can give, the radiation exposure needs to be altered for uh, those types of patients. I gotcha. Um, Yeah, I think that's kind of how I started learning about it too, is because when it affects you, right, then you're just researching and learning. How often do you guys have to manage pregnant patients in your practice? It's not super common. I'd say maybe one to two times a month. But it's enough that each time, if you don't have a protocol, they all come down and nobody knows what medications to give. And (laughs) it's extremely cumbersome. So we've established a good protocol here of how to manage those patients when they do present. Oh, that's fantastic. I think that's something that'd be really useful if you guys are interested in sharing for a lot of our audience members to understand um, maybe who, who interact with pregnant patients on an even less frequent basis than you. What would you say is the most common procedure that you have to perform on a pregnant or a postpartum woman? Well, postpartum is probably postpartum hemorrhage. 
But when it comes to pregnant patients, most often I'm seeing either just a PICC line for hyperemesis gravidarum, but very commonly I see uh, neph tubes because the gravid uterus pushes on the ureters, causes obstruction. So not till later in pregnancy, and they don't have to have it for too long. But uh, it is challenging to place because they're, you know, and they're 30 or so weeks pregnant and no one wants to have a tube sticking out of their back during oh, pregnancy. Gosh. Yeah, the third trimester is painful enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should know. I, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm having my third in the end well, of January. Yeah, thanks. So I've, I've just entered that uh, wonderful time where I feel like a beached whale now. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look like one. <laughs> um, well, let's just get started by talking about radiation exposure. What's the threshold at which the radiation risk significantly increases harm to a fetus? Depends on what gestational age, but the general number people think about is 100 milligrays. That above that, um, either it can be teratogenic or it can just lead to a miscarriage. Okay, so help me kind of understand what are some representative exams that uh, might generate doses that high? Yeah, so... A normal CT abdomen and pelvis, which is going to go through the fetus, is somewhere between 13 to 25 milligrays. So it's still relatively low. A chest X-ray, less than 0.01. Very low doses. So normal diagnostic images, although we want to still be cautious and talk to our patients about it, is not something that's going to be above that threshold if you're just doing a single study. Now, floral procedure in the pelvis can be above that. It can definitely be above 100 milligray, depending on what you're doing. Um, if you're utilizing a fair amount of radiation, that's why we try and avoid as much as possible. Cone in as close as you can. Avoid using the radiation beam over the, uh, the gravid uterus. Sure, sure. Drop your frame rate, all these things. Yeah, well, I think we're really lucky because the technology we have now and a lot of the machines that we use for angiography is really low dose, you know? And it's way better than it was, say, 20 years ago when a lot of this research came out. That's assuming you have newer machines. Sure. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> so if a woman needs to have one pelvic angiogram, I don't know, for what's a, what's a good reason a pregnant woman would need one? So a case that we do a lot is for placenta previa, like the placenta accreta spectrum where you've got previa, accreta, accreta, all those. And so I... Don't do a common femoral artery run. I use very low pulse rate, as minimal fluoro as possible to get up and over bilateral access, bilateral internal arteries, and I don't do any DSAs. I do minimal run, uh, fluoro run, just to prove that I'm in where I think I am, and just enough so that I can see my balloons blowing up to the appropriate volume, and that I don't during the procedure, when I put them up, when they're ready for it, I don't fluoro again. I've already measured the appropriate volume. So my total dose for those procedures is around five milligray. I think nowadays, you know, I'm starting to see like a lot more iliocaval DVT in, in pregnant women. This is a, getting a little bit off of our course, but any tips to reduce exposure for those cases? Yeah. So I only treat iliofemoral DVTs during pregnancy if they're really symptomatic from it. I try and do the vast majority of it IVIS-guided, either IVIS or excluding that portion of the baby and the uterus as much as I possibly can um, to try and keep those doses low. Sure. Yeah, because that's something I feel like we've been seeing more and more of. So let's say a pregnant patient comes down to you for a procedure. 
Could you walk me through how you counsel these patients about their risks related to radiation exposure? Yeah, so it depends on how far along they are in their pregnancy. Um, so if they're very early on in pregnancy, anything above 50 milligray, which depending on what you're doing is possible, could be uh, loss of pregnancy. It's still very early, but it's a known risk. And then anywhere from two to eight weeks is when they're undergoing organogenesis. And so that's when we think about teratogenicity. Also during that time, and then a little bit later, up to 15 weeks, is when they have all of the neural development. So high doses there can lead to mental retardation. But later on, we go in pregnancy. Uh, it's more of the cancer risk associated with cancer at a younger age and then cancer throughout their entire life. So it says that there is a 0.6% risk per 10 milligray of exposure to the fetus. Very, very low, but higher than the background population. And then when it comes to all cancers, it's 0.4% risk per 10 milligray exposure during pregnancy. So definitely something to caution our patients about, but something to be aware of as well as the pregnant practitioner. Got it. Yeah, definitely. Have you encountered any resistance from pregnant women for necessary procedures due to radiation risk? Obviously, they're concerned, but most times when we have pregnant patients that have to undergo a procedure, it's because they're in so much pain or so desperate to have nutrition because they're vomiting so much or whatever it is, the procedure for the most part has to be done. We don't do elective procedures during pregnancy. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about that. How do you schedule elective, semi-urgent, and emergency procedures for these pregnant women? Well, all emergent procedures obviously happen right away. Um, semi-urgent, have a conversation regarding timing for the urgency of it, depending on where she is in her gestational age. And then elective ones, the only elective ones that I really do prepartum are port placements so that you know, you're well away from a uterus. The amount of radiation you're giving is so low. But if the patient has cancer and they're going to deliver early so that they can start chemo, I don't want them to have to separate anymore from their new baby. And so I'll do it like the week leading into their planned C-section or planned induction so that uh, that's taken care of ahead of time. Is there anything else that you want to talk about as it relates to radiation exposure for a pregnant woman? Um, the other thing I want to talk about is the radiation exposure during breastfeeding. Your breast tissue is more radiosensitive while you're pregnant, but also in the postpartum period if you're breastfeeding. So we do need to be cognizant about radiation exposure to the chest, not just to the gravid uterus. And so sometimes I'll get like a cardiac CTA or something, which is a very high dose to the chest. And if the patient can undergo some sort of other you know, a, a stress test or something that might be less dose to the chest uh, and it's something they can put off, obviously only in the elective setting. Those are things that I have a conversation with, both the ordering as well as the patient prior to doing that or any other sort of high dose chest imaging or procedure that you might be doing during that time period. Like if, for instance, your elective or urgent cases, if they have a high dose procedure that they need to have in the chest, you know, I'd rather wait until they're done breastfeeding rather than while they're still breastfeeding. Totally. Okay, well, that about wraps it up on radiation exposure. Uh, let's move on to our next topic, which is meds. Um, I think the meds things confuse a lot of IR docs um, and nurses 
And there's always, I feel like every place that I've worked, there've been these arcane policies about how we give meds and how we manage the pregnant women. So let's just get down to the nitty gritty. Can you give iodinated contrast safely to a pregnant woman? Yes. Okay. Can you give gadolinium safely to a pregnant woman? No. Perfect. All right. What are the guidelines for breastfeeding after both IV contrast, iodinated contrast, and gadolinium? There's some discrepancy, but the general rule is that you do not need to pump and dump. You can continue breastfeeding continuously despite the dose of contrast that you might get. Let's talk about sedation meds for pregnant women and breastfeeding women. What are the current guidelines? So an area that definitely is very challenging for most people to care for these patients. Uh, ACOG has come up with new guidelines recently. They used to historically use those categories A, B, C, D, but those are no longer used. And now they just give out the recommendations of what we know about these medications and how they can be used safely. Um, So starting with just procedural sedation. Our most common medications that we use are fentanyl. Fentanyl, uh, you can use safely for any sort of procedural anesthesia um, or sedation. Opioid medications in general are not thought to be teratogenic. The only one, though, that has proven safety evidence in the first trimester of pregnancy is meparidine. Personally, I don't use meparidine at all, so I'm not comfortable administering that, but uh, you can use fentanyl just as well. It is important to be aware that if you use narcotics for an extended period of time, though, you can have withdrawal symptoms, including, you know, they may be present in the baby if it's close to delivery. Uh, the most common benzodiazepine we use, midazolam, can be used during sedation, both for amnesia and anxiety reduction. You know, there's a bunch of different benzodiazepines that people will use, but midazolam is a good safety profile in pregnancy. Longer half-life than some of the other ones that might be less favorable for procedural sedation. The only downside to any sort of benzodiazepine is the risk of floppy infant syndrome, which is characterized by neonatal sedation, muscle laxity, and failure to suckle. But that's also if you're using it for an extended period of time and close to delivery. So for the majority of our procedures that are relatively short procedures, there's no sort of contraindication at all to using our standard procedural sedation regimen. Okay. Do you have to uh, change the dosing at all? Do you start lower with pregnant women? Yeah. So actually you start higher because they've got larger blood volume and uh, higher GFR. um, So they clear it much faster than a standard patient would. I would still go with small increments more frequently rather than, you know, dumping medicines. But yeah, it's actually contrary to what you would think. Interesting. Is there any sort of special fetal monitoring that has to happen during a procedure with a pregnant woman? So in a pregnant patient that already has a fetal heart tone, you should always get fetal heart tones before the procedure and after the procedure to confirm that everything's good with the baby. In any sort of emergent procedure or when you are in like the delivery room for a placenta accreta spectrum case, those may be continually monitored during the procedure. But that's really for the rare circumstance where you're very concerned about the baby and that's why you're performing the procedure. Got it. So pretty much sounds like you're using fentanyl versed for pregnant women. Um, How about for breastfeeding women? You can do the same. The amount of medication that goes through the breast milk is extremely minimal. No pump and dump. Got it. All right. So how about antibiotics? Any suggestions for how we should do pre-procedure antibiotics? 
Yeah, you can use all of your normal antibiotics with a few exceptions. Fluoroquinolones have to be avoided in pregnancy. There's uncertain question about their safety in pregnancy, and the demonstration of teratogenicity is a bit inconsistent in some of the trials. Um, so they say no to that, as well as immunoglycosides like gentamicin. Those should be avoided in the first trimester because they can cause deafness. Teratocyclins like doxycycline also should be avoided because they can cause bone and teeth discoloration, maternal liver toxicity, and uh, ligamentous problems. So for the most part, you know, our standard meds, Ansef, Clinda, all of those you can use. Fantastic. And then we talked about fetal monitoring. Any other type of peri-procedure additional management that an IR doctor should know about for these patients? A lot of our procedures deal with anticoagulation, and so it's important to know what kind of anticoagulation you can give your patients afterwards. During pregnancy, the answer is Lovenox. You cannot give Coumadin during pregnancy. Lovenox has the best data with an improved safety profile and ease of use when compared to unfractionated heparin. The 10 medicines we don't know anything about in pregnancy, so it's also recommended to avoid those. Perfect. Okay, let's get into the flash sequence of our podcast where we talk about specific procedures. I'd love to talk about a couple different procedures and some special considerations for them. So uh, for NEF tubes, what is the deal with pregnant people and NEF tubes? Why do these get so crusty? <laughs> you know, pregnant women get more calcium in their collecting system. Pregnant women are more common to, you know, get kidney stones in the first place. I think it's because we down Tums because you get so much heartburn. <laughs> I'm sure there's another reason, but th that's my hypothesis. Either way, because it. you have so much crustaceans in the urinary system, they can crust off their tubes and get them clogged much more frequently. So there's a huge discussion on SIR Connect recently about flushing neft tubes. So we've actually changed our practice here where we don't routinely flush neft tubes unless the patient is infected. They have a history of clogging off their tubes or they're pregnant. And so we make sure that they always flush them. But also we change them every four weeks for pregnant patients just to try and avoid them getting obstructed because you really don't want a pregnant lady to get sick and the back pain of a, of a clogged up tube. How do you tell the, the back pain of normal pregnancy? I mean, <laughs> just a disaster. It's just a disaster. Um, do you put in larger tubes or you just put in same size tubes as you would for a regular? Same size tubes. Okay. Perfect. And then that's a procedure that, you know, in an average patient, we would perform prone. But talk to me a little bit about how, how we position patients during different phases of their pregnancy. So this is actually very interesting because with COVID, they did a lot of proning of pregnant patients. And so historically, we never proned pregnant patients just because, you know, you're pushing on the uterus. But with appropriate pillow positioning, you can have a pregnant patient prone. That being said, we still put them decubitus as long as you can see it. Like we'll lay them decubitus in the bed and check with the ultrasound to make sure we're able to see the kidney. If for whatever reason we really can't see them, body habitus, ribs, whatever the reason, we can prone them with appropriate pillow location in order to be able to do this procedure safely. Ultimately, it's all about you being able to safely do the procedure. Okay, cool. As long as you can get to where you need to get to, then you're good. How about gallbladder tubes? I noticed uh, in that presentation, you mentioned that we should use a transhepatic route for gallbladder tubes. What's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so a transhepatic route will give you more stability of that tube rather than a transperitoneal. And then with the 
abdomen expanding and the gravid uterus pushing up on all of the organs, a transperitoneal route will lead to a higher rate of dislodgement of the tube within the gallbladder compared to a transhepatic route where it's got much more stability. This is an ongoing discussion in my practice about which one's better, transhepatic or transperitoneal. In pregnancy or just in general? Just in general. You know, one of the good things I work in a bigger practice is everybody's trained at different places. And it's it's just nice to learn kind of what other people have learned as what their dogma is. And It's very interesting. <laughs> Everyone's got it? very strong <laughs> opinions about things that are exactly opposite of how I learned in training. <laughs> it's just so interesting how everyone f- has learned to do the same procedures, but in different ways and feels very strongly about non-data-driven things. <laughs> Isn't it true? It's amazing the hills that certain people are willing to die on. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are there any other procedures that um, maybe have special considerations for a pregnant woman? Really, the only thing I can think about is visceral artery aneurysms. So I try and counsel my patients that are of childbearing age and interested in pregnancy to have these treated ahead of time just because of the risk of rupture. And in pregnancy, there's a higher risk that they will grow because of the increased blood volume. There's a great chart from the SVS that was put out in 2020 that gives you guidelines for each of the vessels and sizes. Overall, in general, that size cutoff is two centimeters unless it's splenic arteries, which is three. But uh, women of childbearing age, they should all be treated. Got it. Awesome. Well, that's a pretty good overview for uh, how we manage IR procedures for pregnant patients. I wanted to talk about something that comes up in my practice a little bit. And that is management of a pregnant patient with chest pain. And the ER doctors will say, oh, well, we have to get a VQ scan. So help me help them <laughs> understand uh, what a better option would be. Yeah, so it's, it's really tough, VQ versus CTPA versus just treat them. So there's this huge meta-analysis that was done in a hematology journal back in 2019 that took all of the data comparing VQs versus CTPAs in pregnant patients. And ultimately, they don't have an answer. That <laughs> it was really enlightening. There's not enough good quality data comparing the two of them to truly come up with a one is better than the other. You know, VQ scans, you think, if it's going to say intermediate probability, what are you going to do? Are you going to do a CTPA anyways? Or are you going to treat the patient anyways? So it's definitely a lower dose but you have to take that part into consideration. It's a lower dose to the baby, but it's a higher dose to the pregnant breast tissue, either for breastfeeding patients or pregnant patients. And so you weigh the pros and cons of maternal radiation versus fetal radiation. Uh, CTPA definitely has a higher diagnostic quality and will tell you right heart strain and where those PEs might be and whether they need to be treated um, based on location combined with like a PESI score. But I don't have a great answer for you. I wish I did. My personal opinion is a CTPA. Well, sure. I mean, like, which would you rather read, right? <laughs> yeah. Because what am I going to do with something that says intermediate probability? <laughs> You're just going to keep living your life. <laughs> yeah. But overall, the, the amount in that study between all of the data, the, the number of positive patients was between 1% to 7%. So it's extremely low that the pretest probability of actually having a PE in these patients. I guess, I mean, 7%, that's not terribly low, but yeah, I see where you're coming from. I I get that. Um, Have you had to do any uh, pulmonary thrombectomy on on pregnant patients? 
I have not. I've done a bunch of DVT work, but not PE. Yeah, I haven't had to do that either, but I always wonder what I would do if that came up. But okay, anyways, that's an aside. But yeah, it sounds like you've had to do a fair amount of DVT work on it. Well, that pretty much is all my questions. Is there anything else that you want to talk about as it relates to pregnant IR patients? No, I just, I don't want people to be intimidated about treating this patient population. It's such a tough, challenging time in a pregnant patient's life when they're going through you know, this other pain or these other problems related to their pregnancy, and they just want to be home and enjoy being pregnant or enjoy their newborn baby. And so medical management or radiation uh, safety is something that we should be very familiar with so we can put our patients at ease. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. We are our patients' advocates, right? And we got to know the data. We got to know what's best for them. We have to know this data better than anybody else so that we can manage these patients because nobody else knows the radiation data. Well, uh, Nikki, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Allie. It was great to see you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.